0: Welcome to In the Public Interest, a podcast from Wilmer Hale. I'm John Walsh. And I'm Felicia Ellsworth. John and I are partners at Wilmer Hale, an international law firm that works at the intersection of government, technology, and business.
1: Today's episode is the latest installment of our new Supreme Court mini series, where we dive into the most hotly contested decisions coming out of the court this term and discuss the implications of several of the court's rulings going forward.
0: For this episode, we'll be discussing the court's recent decision in Groff versus DeJoy, which concerns religious liberty and employment accommodations under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. Joining me to discuss this case is Matthew Martins, a partner in Wilmer Hale's Washington, D.C. office who specializes in high-stakes criminal and civil investigations, securities litigation, and appellate work. Thanks so much, Matt, for joining us on this episode of our Supreme Court miniseries.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So this is a very important case, Matt, with large implications for religious freedom and for business operations. And I think it'd be useful to start with some facts. Could you maybe give us a quick overview of what happened in this lawsuit?
1: Sure. In this case, Mr. Groff was a rural carrier associate with the U.S. Postal Service from 2012 through 2019 who requested a religious accommodation because as an evangelical Christian, he recognized Sunday as his Sabbath when he didn't want to work. And this created some tension both with his coworkers and his supervisors because he was unwilling to work on Sundays. For a while, they were able to accommodate that by moving him to a different location. But ultimately, because of Amazon's partnership with the US Postal Service for Sunday delivery, it became impossible for him to avoid the need to work on Sunday without some type of accommodation. He was subjected to progressive discipline because he refused to do so and ultimately resigned. He contended because he was about to be fired. And so the question when he brought a lawsuit was whether or not he was protected in his religious right to not work on Sunday or whether he could be terminated because of that.
0: What were the legal issues or the statutes and laws implicated by the facts of this case?
1: The statute was Title VII, which is what he brought his lawsuit under, the Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which protects him from discrimination on the basis of religion in the terms and conditions of employment. And there was a provision in there that said that an employer had to accommodate his religious practice if they could do so without undue burden. That undue burden language had been interpreted by the Supreme Court years ago in the 1970s in a case called Trans World Airlines versus Hardison. In Hardison, the Supreme Court had said that there is an undue burden on an employer if there was more than de minimis cost to the employer in providing the accommodation. So lower courts had over the years interpreted that to be a pretty low threshold and thus had not really required employers to provide much of an accommodation.
0: What were the parties' different positions in the case, or were the arguments presented to the court?
1: This is one of those rare cases where the parties agreed that the de minimis language in Hardison was not a proper interpretation of the undue hardship test that Title VII contains. And so the question was, should it be overruled? Does it need to be overruled? Can it be reinterpreted? And what is the proper meaning of undue hardship? The parties each put forward their own phraseology as to what undue hardship should mean. So the counsel for Graf said it should mean significant difficulty or expense. The government said it should mean substantial expenditures or substantial additional costs. I mean, this is a dispute that only lawyers could love. Is it significant expense or is it substantial expenditures? This was, to some degree, the semantic fight. The real dispute was over how it would play out. There were lots of hypotheticals that the justices were discussing with the lawyers about how whatever language they adopted, if it's not de minimis, what does undue hardship mean in practical life and which expenses count? Do burdens on co-workers count or is it burdens on the business as a business count? And so this was the back and forth that was occurring in the argument to sort of sort out both semantic issues, which the court kind of dodged and said, listen, it's something like a lot of expense or substantial expense, and we don't really have to answer every hypothetical here, and left for another day the hypotheticals about how it would play out.
0: So before we get to the court's decision, can you talk a little bit about Wilmer Hale's role in this case?
1: A team of counsel and associates at Wilmer Hale and I filed an amicus brief in support of Mr. Groff on behalf of the American Hindu Coalition. Our firm has a long history of doing religious liberty work of various types, and this was a natural fit for us to get involved. And what we wanted to emphasize in the brief on behalf of the American Hindu Coalition is the unique burdens that minority religions face in the United States. The idea of a desire to take a Sabbath is probably not foreign to a lot of folks, even if they themselves don't observe it. They may have heard of that. because of the United States history, it's easier for people in majority religions to get accommodations either through the legislative process or just because their practices are more familiar to employers. And what we wanted to emphasize was the degree to which that's not true for minority religions and that how the court interpreted that undue hardship language in Title VII could have very practical and substantial impacts on minority religions and that they should keep that in mind as they devised the appropriate test.
0: Very interesting. So with that context in mind, Matt, tell us about the court's decision. What did the court eventually decide in this case? Did they say anything about the decision in Hardison?
1: Well, so they don't technically overrule Hardison, or at least they say they don't. They say, well, that sentence about de minimis costs, you have to read in the context, and there's two contexts that they flag. One, at the time of the Hardison decision back in the 70s, there was a much more robust or vigorous interpretation of the Establishment Clause, and so there was some concern that a broad reading of Undue Hardship could start raising establishment issues. And then secondarily, the particular dispute in Hardison was whether or not that undue hardship language could be used to overcome seniority rights in a collective bargaining agreement. And so the court flags both of those and says, listen, we're not saying that we're overruling Hardison in terms of whether the undue hardship test trumps seniority rights in a collective bargaining agreement. It does not. And they reaffirm that. But they said the de minimis language was really loose language. We also, in the same opinion, referred to substantial increased costs. And so where we're going to come down is that an employer has to show that granting an accommodation would result in a substantial increased cost in relation to the conduct of its business. And so they adopt a substantial cost language from Hardison and say the de minimis language, if it matters at all, is only in the context of seniority rights in a collective bargaining agreement. And then they say it's a fact-specific inquiry. You've got to look case by case, and you have to focus on cost to the business, not cost to coworkers.
0: Given all that, what do you think the case means in terms of implications going forward for other employers?
1: Well, I think the primary thing it means, given that it's a fact-specific inquiry, is that employers are probably much less likely to get summary judgment in these type of cases. I mean, that's, in fact, what happened to Mr. Groff is that he lost at the summary judgment stage because the court below had said he couldn't show something more than a de minimis burden. So I think it'll be much easier for employees to get over that threshold And more likely that the case would go to a jury trial, and probably thus more likely that employers and employees would have to negotiate either in the context of litigation or before litigation over what would be a proper accommodation. Because the fact specific inquiry makes it more likely that employees would win, but the fact specific inquiry also means it's not clear who wins. It's very, by definition, very fact intensive. And so I think you'll see more accommodation in the future because both sides face risk, but employees face more likelihood that they could prevail.
0: Can you touch a bit on Justice Sotomayor's concurring opinion? What did she have to say, and what, if anything, do we take from it? What I see
1: Justice Sotomayor doing is two things. One, emphasizing the importance of stare decisis, particularly in the context of statutory interpretation, that the court is loath to almost ever overrule a statutory interpretation because, and I think rightly so, the court views that is the job of Congress. If the court misinterpreted a statute, Congress can fix that by a simple majority. There's no reason for the court to go back and change its interpretation. So she just wants to emphasize that stare decisis element of their ruling here that they aren't and shouldn't be overruling prior interpretations. But then she also discusses a point of some disagreement that you saw in the oral argument and in the opinions, which is the degree to which undue hardship on fellow co-workers satisfies the undue hardship test. The statute refers to undue hardship on the conduct of the employer's business. It doesn't say undue hardship on the business. And it's that conduct of the business language that Justice Sotomayor said could allow for taking into account impacts on co-workers because labor is important to a business. So she believes there would be some impacts on co-workers that could be a proper basis for denying an accommodation.
0: What implications beyond this specific case and beyond Title VII do you see from the court's decision in this case in terms of religious liberty or the requirement of employers to accommodate individual employees' exercise of their own individual religions?
1: Well, I think... What you've seen over the last probably decade, maybe a little more than a decade, is a court that is much more vigorous in protecting religious liberty, much more protective of religious practice than perhaps prior courts, even though the prior courts were quite protective of religious liberty. I think you see it on overdrive with this court. But most of those cases have been in the context of the individual vis-a-vis the government whether the state government or the local government or a public university or the federal government. And this case is unique in that it now takes a vigorous view of the rights of employees to engage in religious practice vis-a-vis private employers. And so I think it's this move into the private sphere that distinguishes the Groff decision from the many other religious liberty cases that the court has been handing down over the last decade.
0: Well, very interesting and more to come for sure on this front and others from this court. Thank you so much, Matt, for joining us today to talk about this important case. We really appreciate it.
1: Thanks for having me.